Okay, let's open up God's Word to Luke 16, verse 18. Luke 16, 18. Marriage, divorce, adultery, and money, all here in one verse, in one context. Luke 16, 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your word. It is true. It's righteous. It is what you desire for us, the purpose for us in marriage. And we pray that you'll help us to understand. Guide us by your Holy Spirit. Teach us, Lord, to believe as you have taught us here. May we understand this subject and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen. This one verse is in the middle of the chapter, the chapter where Jesus teaches against love of money. In the first part of the chapter is the parable of the unrighteous steward, which was also a lesson on not loving money, but using money correctly for the kingdom of God. And then in verse 14, it says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and they were scoffing at him. They're scoffing at him because of that parable he just announced and they know what Jesus' attitude and belief is about money. So then Jesus teaches them and warns them not to love what men love. What is highly esteemed among men, verse 15, is detestable in the sight of God. Further, verses 16 and 17, Jesus clarifies that what he's teaching is in harmony with the Old Testament. It's in harmony with the law and the prophets. He did not come to subvert or undermine or contradict the law and the prophets, but to teach consistently with it, which means that the law and the prophets and Jesus all taught the kingdom of heaven, heavenly, spiritual, eternal truths for the forgiveness of sins. Our life in this world is not about the material world. It is to be centrally focused on spiritual and eternal things. Now, verse 18 is related to this same subject, just as the rest of the chapter is with the rich man and Lazarus. He continues to address our relationship to money. Naturally, our relationship to money has to do with marriage. People don't often realize that, but it often has to do with money. Money and marriage often go hand in hand. The man needs to be wealthy enough for the wife to have confidence and security to marry him. And how does he have that wealth? Either by being a hard worker or having a good job or inheriting a lot of money. There needs to be money in the marriage in order for the marriage to survive. And it's often the case that both men and women, husbands and wives, in their marriages are happy or unhappy based on the amount of money they have and then they seek to divorce and marry someone else in order to be more financially stable. Is that not what often happens in marriages and divorces? That's what often happens. So this is a fitting exhortation or warning here in the middle of this chapter. Marriage, divorce, adultery, all related to money. Now let's see what Jesus says here, but not only here, but elsewhere in Scripture we'll see what the Bible says on the subject. Verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Now, when he says everyone, he's talking about the man or the husband 
who divorces his wife, and if this husband marries another, then he commits adultery. Jesus does not have an exception made here. He just asserts the fundamental truth. He just asserts the basic axiom, the way God looks at it. If anyone divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. Why? Because he divorced unjustly. He divorced for the wrong reason. That's why when we will see that there is a qualification that Jesus makes in other places. But basically and fundamentally, if one divorces his wife and marries another woman, then he commits adultery. Then we also need to clarify what is marriage and what is adultery. In the Bible, marriage is between one man and one woman. It's between one man and one woman. Not between one man and 10 or 15 or 100 women. And it's not between one woman and two men or 10 men or 100 men. Nor is it between a man and an animal or a woman and an animal or a woman and a tree or a man and a tree. It doesn't happen that way. It's between a man and a woman, uh, let alone between an adult and a child. That should never happen, whether a man or a woman and a child, that should never happen. So in the Bible, that's what marriage is, between one adult male and one adult female. What is adultery? Adultery is when that marital union is violated by one or both of the partners in the marriage. Husband, if he has sexual relations with someone else other than his wife, then that's adultery. If the wife has sexual relations with someone else, then that is adultery. The husband should all only do um, have sexual intercourse with his own wife and the wife with her own husband. If they go anywhere else, then that is called adultery. The Bible uses other words like fornication, immorality, sexual immorality. These words are also used. Sometimes those words are used to describe any sexual sin. Sometimes they are used to describe sexual sin before marriage. And then sometimes it's used to describe even adultery or adultery and premarital sex. So the Bible uses these words in this way. So he says here that any man who divorces his wife and marries another woman, he's committing adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. That means if he were to divorce his wife and marry another woman, that man would be committing adultery. Then if that man marries one, or if a man marries a woman who has been divorced from a husband, then he commits adultery, which means that let's say that there's a man who's never married. If he never married and he marries a divorced woman from a husband, divorced from a husband, then that man would be committing adultery with that woman. Now, why is it considered adultery? It's considered adultery also, and we'll see elsewhere, because the husband or the wife, they should have remained married and the moment they divorced and married another person, then that immediately becomes adultery because God does not consider that second union to be a valid union, to be a legal union. 
to be a righteous union. He does not consider that second union to be valid or right and good and godly in his sight. Therefore, he calls it adultery. That's how, how confined and strict the Bible is. In our day and age, nobody wants to live this way. Everybody wants to live with a, a loosey-goosey, very casual and free way of thinking about marriage and relationships and sexual relationships. That's the way our culture is. That's the way the world is. We are bombarded with this kind of thinking every day. But that's not the way the Bible is. The Bible, because of God as creator, has designed for us to have healthy relationships, marital relationships, and even familial relationships based on a husband and a wife being married until death, until the death of one or both of them. That's the way it should happen. That's why the vows say, till death do us part. So, Let's see from other scriptures what else the Bible has to say on marriage. Marriage, divorce, adultery, so forth. Firstly, on divorce, we have a set of passages. The first one is Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Matthew 5, 31. The same subject is addressed, and Jesus is speaking. Matthew 5, 31, and it was said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 31 is quoting Deuteronomy 24, parts of Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4, verse 31. It was said in the book of Deuteronomy, in the law of Moses, Moses said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal, a certificate of divorce. A certificate needs to be there in order for there to be boundaries and stipulations and regulations on that divorce so that both the man and the woman have boundaries set before them as to how that divorce and the consequences of that divorce will occur. That is in relation to property, money, children. Those kinds of things need to be in that certificate. But even though that was permitted, even though that was stated by Moses as to be possible, Jesus is emphasizing the marriage and divorce part of it and the adultery part of it. Verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity, except for the reason or cause of unchastity or immorality. The word in the original language is the word porneia. Porneia is the word from Greek from which we get our English word pornography. Pornography comes from this word right here, in Matthew 5.32. So he says, unless there is immorality, if the man divorces his wife, he has committed a sin. He has broken God's law. He should not divorce his wife unless the wife committed immorality. And if that happens, he makes her commit adultery. When he says he makes her commit adultery, he's assuming, as we will see elsewhere, 
that the woman will remarry. And if she remarries, and she was divorced for the wrong reason, and she remarries, then you're making her commit adultery. So not only is the man sinning, the husband, but when he unjustly, illegitimately divorces his wife and she remarries and marries another man, you're making her commit a sin too. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then the man who married the divorced woman, who should not have been divorced, he's also committing adultery. So adultery and sin, this, these crimes against God have been multiplied by, uh, into the life of one, two, three, at least three individuals. Here, the only reason he gives for divorce, valid reason for divorce, is immorality. Furthermore, let's go to chapter 19. Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 1. Matthew 19, 1. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all, any cause or any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Consequently, they are no more two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together... Let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Verses 1 and 2 describe great multitudes. Large crowds of people are following Christ. And the Pharisees, they don't want all the people to follow Christ, so they come and approach Jesus with a difficult question to test him, to ensnare him and to make him look foolish so that he takes a side and gets the crowds away from him. They get the crowds away from him and back to the Pharisees. This is the kind of thing the Pharisees were doing, being jealous of Jesus' popularity. And the question they ask is a very controversial question because you can easily, with this question, get all the men to hate you, or all the women to hate you, or even both groups to hate you. You can get all kinds of people to hate you if you give the wrong answer, right? Wrong answer in the eyes of men. But Jesus doesn't fall for it. He goes straight to the Bible and gives God's view on it. What does he say? Verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read? Have you not read? He is rebuking them. He's chiding them and mocking them. You Pharisees are teachers. You're teachers of the Bible, the Old Testament. And you don't know about this? 
Why are you asking me? You can't be completely ignorant. You know what's there. Then if you're not completely ignorant of it and you know what's there, then, then you don't understand what's there or you do understand it and you are malicious towards me. Now, if you don't understand it, you know what's there and you don't understand it, then why are you teaching? Just sit down and let somebody else teach. Let me teach. Or if you do understand it and you're trying to trap me, doesn't that show you have a wicked heart? So when he says, have you not read, he's implying all this. He's making the people realize these, these men, the Pharisees, are malicious. That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. That's Genesis 1, 27. Genesis 1, 27, God created them male and female. Don't you know that? So if God created them male and female, then we should have God's view of it. And if you don't know what God's view is, just go to the first chapter of the Bible. I made it easy for you. Just go to the first chapter of the Bible. Just open up to the first page and start reading. Furthermore, you can go to the second page of the Bible, the second chapter, verse 5. And said, for this cause, or for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says this. After God created the woman, this is what God instituted. He instituted the fact that the man will leave father and mother, he will cleave or join with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God instituted that. God is the one who conducted the first marital ceremony, right? Because after he created Eve, the woman, he brought Eve to the man, and they were joined together and became one flesh. Husband and wife. God did that. And it says he caused the man or asserts that the man ought to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. So if he's going to cleave, cling on to, that means he's not going to let go. He shouldn't be letting go, right? And they shall, shall become one flesh. Now, if they are one flesh, then what the husband does, he's not only doing for himself, but for his wife. And then whatever the wife does, she's not only doing for herself, she's also doing it for her husband. They are together as one in their marriage. Of course, they are two persons, they are two bodies, but one flesh, not only in the physical sense, but in every other sense, they are to be together as one. Then if God ordained it this way from the very beginning, even before sin entered into the world, verse 6, Consequently, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God joined them together, so why should man separate them? Why should man invent pretexts in order to escape marriage? Why should man invent false reasons to escape marriage once he's been married? Why should he invent from his own wisdom a way that's different from God's way? So that should have been enough. However, these people are fault finders. They're trying to find a way to sneak in something that Jesus does not know. So verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? Yes, Moses issued that command, but they're not reading the context carefully. If they read the context carefully of Deuteronomy 24, it would be if the husband found 
indecency in the woman, that is, immorality in the woman, fornication or adultery in the woman, if the man found that in the woman, then he could divorce her. Then the command to give her a certificate is enjoined. Then the command to give her that certificate is valid. Otherwise, he can't just give her a certificate on a whim. He can't do it willy-nilly. He has to do it for a proper reason. If he found indecency in her, immorality, unchastity, as Matthew 5, 31 and 32 say, and even here, as it says in verse 9, except for immorality. Only then could the man issue that certificate and send her away. And why did he permit this? Verse 8. Why did Moses permit it? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Because you are so stubborn, because you are so bent on evil and inflexible and unwilling to repent of sin, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. If the woman is unrepentant, then the man can divorce his wife. Or if the wife is repentant and the husband is unwilling to forgive her, then there is that problem too, right? It brings this disharmony and contention in the marriage. He's saying because of the hardness of heart of sin, that's why divorce happens. But that's not the way it was from the beginning, from the beginning of creation. When God made Adam and Eve, when he created the world, it has not been this way. It was not God's intention to have divorce happen. It was not God's intention to have hardness of heart happen. He wants obedience. He established obedience. He established a righteous and good way for marriage to occur. So verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus asserts, like he did in chapter 5, Matthew 5, he says, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality or unchastity, porneia, for sexual immorality, unless it's for that reason, if he divorces his wife and marries another woman, he's committing adultery. It's adultery because he should not have any sexual union with anyone else except his own wife. That's quite clear, is it not? Well, in verses 10 to 12, the disciples say, well, if it's going to be that, that way, that strict, that hard-lined, that much of a straight path, they're saying it's better not to marry. However, the problem is most men and women ought to get married because that's natural and God-ordained. From Genesis 1, 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And in chapter uh, 2.24, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The natural, the standard, the vast majority of people who ever live, this is what should happen. A man should find a wife and they should marry and have children if God blesses them with children. So that's the way it should happen. But if it does not happen to a few people, to a minority of people, if it does not happen, then he says there are three ways in which there are single people or 
here he's using the word eunuch. A eunuch could be a eunuch in three ways. Verse 12, the celibate person or the eunuch, verse 12. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, which means that their sexual organs were not fully formed and able. And if they're not that way, then they can't marry, right? They can't marry and have children. And if they were born that way, then who created them that way? God. So when he says they were born that way from their mother's womb, he's saying, by implication, God made them to be single for the rest of their life. But then verse 12 says, there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. That happens when there are superiors such as kings and often like with dictators. When, when they want to have men guard women or guard families and prevent those men from committing sexual immorality with the women and the girls under their charge, then they will be castrated. They, they will be fixed so that they are unable to have sexual relationships. So they are made eunuchs or celibate by force by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And what's this? This is corresponding to 1 Corinthians 7, which says that there are people who are gifted with singleness. They are gifted with chastity, gifted because they don't have the desire for marriage. They can keep self-control with their sexual uh, feelings. They can keep them under control so that they don't desire marriage. They don't need marriage. This happens with a few men and with some women. But if they have dedicated themselves for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, then they can keep self-control and use their extra time for the sake of the gospel. That's what Jesus means. And he says, he who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Whoever is able to accept it in one manner or the other, that he has to determine between himself and God. But there's no compromise with the marriage and divorce issue. There's no compromise with that. Now, let's look at marriage itself. God ordained marriage. We've been citing Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God made them male and female. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, right? And in, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25, the man was created first. Adam, the man, first man was shown that the animals did not correspond to him, were unsuitable for him to be his helper. So God created the woman to show the man that he needed the woman. Now, what does God think of this bond, this marital bond or marital union? What does God think of it? Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17. Proverbs 2, 17. Here he's describing a woman who commits adultery. And he says in 2.17, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. When a woman commits adultery, 
She's leaving her youthful companion and she forgets the covenant of her God, which means that marriage is a covenant. It's not called a covenant in Genesis, but it's called a covenant here. When they make their vows, the husband and the wife toward one another, it's a covenant not only between themselves, but before God. The covenant of her God. She said in the name of God that she would be faithful to her husband, but she broke it. Malachi. Uh, actually, no. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 12. Let's stay in Proverbs for a few more references. Proverbs 12 on what marriage is and how good it is. Proverbs 12, verse 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is as rottenness in his bones. An excellent wife. When it says excellent, it means virtuous, a godly, God-fearing wife. A godly wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is as rottenness in his bones. Obviously, when there is an excellent or virtuous wife, that that is a blessing to the marriage and especially to the husband. Chapter 18, chapter 18, Proverbs 18, 22. 18:22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Finding a wife is good and God grants favor or grace to that relationship. Proverbs 19, 14. Proverbs 19, 14. House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. A prudent or wise, godly wife is from the Lord. God is the one who provides that. Then, let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 on the importance of this Mary, of, of marriage. Proverbs, um, excuse me, Ephesians 5.22, 5, 5.22 to 33. 5.22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church." because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Verses 32 and 33 are a summary of what he said in 22 to 31. That is, spiritually speaking, there is a connection between Christ and the church and the husband and the wife. There is a spiritual relationship with this marital relationship. As well, 
he says, the husband ought to love his wife as himself, which is the second greatest commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The closest neighbor you have is your wife. And then the wife ought to respect or honor her husband. That's essentially what he's saying there. That's the way the marriage is supposed to be. Then, warnings against adultery. Warnings against adultery. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, 13. Hebrews 13, verse 4. Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let's also read verses 5 and 6 because he also brings up money right after marriage. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Verse 4 says that marriage is to be held in honor among all. Everyone should honor marriage and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Don't pervert it and pollute the marriage bed. And how will that be polluted? Because fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Here's an example of fornication being a kind of sexual sin that's different from adultery. Fornicators and adulterers God will judge. There will be punishment for those who do so. And then he says, don't love money, Instead, trust God. He'll provide for you. Furthermore, let's go to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. We'll read verses 1 to 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 8. Finally then, brethren... We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandment we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you." We're supposed to walk in a manner pleasing to God, doing God's will. This is what Jesus commanded. This is what the apostles teach. And that we should abstain from sexual immorality. We have to control our own vessel, our own body, in sanctification, in holiness, and honor, not lustful passion, like the Gentiles who don't know God. The Gentiles, the unbelieving people, the nations of the world. The world doesn't care about this, but we should because we do know God, or we at least claim to know God, and we should not defraud our brother, meaning our neighbor. Don't defraud our brother or our neighbor, our fellow man, because if we commit adultery with another man's wife, 
we're doing wrong to another. And who's going to avenge this evil deed? God. And this is a solemn warning. Not to practice impurity, but sanctification. And if we don't believe this, we don't like this, we're rejecting the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, what will happen finally to the sexually immoral people? Revelation 21, verse 8. Revelation 21, 8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons, there we have it. By immoral, he means sexually immoral. Revelation 21, 8. And sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What awaits all of these sinners? And this is just a sample list of sins. It's not an exhaustive list. They will go to the lake of fire and be punished forever. Revelation 22, 22, 14 and 15. Revelation 22, 14 and 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. If we want to be a part of the heavenly city, the eternal city, then we must have our robes washed. We'll be blessed. But those who are excluded from that heavenly city are dogs, sorcerers, immoral persons. He mentions them again. By immoral, he means sexually immoral. Those who practice the pornographic sins. Now, pornography is more today related to pictures or magazines or something like that. But in the Bible, pornography has to do with any sexual sin. Any sexual sin. Those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will be excluded from the heavenly city. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.